Thank you, Dr. Getch. I appreciate it. That was actually a trick with my boys. I told them, if you guys want dinner, you're all taking good notes. And so that was the way that I was able to graduate. I'm thankful to be here. <laughs> Brother Herbster, thank you for the great music. You're a genuine man. It was so neat back there in the ready room just hearing uh, the burden that he has at Southland Christian Camp. I encourage you guys to get over there and meet him. It's so great to be here and worship the Lord this morning, isn't it? It is such a blessing to be back in chapel. It is a highlight, and you will miss it. Well, this morning, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 22. And we're going to be going through most of this chapter, but if you would open up there to verses 11 through 14 for our scripture reading. First Samuel 22, and again, we'll read verses 11 through 14 as we begin. The Bible says, Then the king sent to call Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests that were in Nob, and they came, all of them, to the king. And Saul said, Hear now, thou son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said unto him, Why have ye conspired against me, thou and the son of Jesse, in that thou hast given him bread and a sword, and hast inquired of God for him, that he should rise against me, to lie in wait, as at this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king and said, And who is so faithful among all thy servants as David, which is the king's son-in-law, and goeth at thy bidding, and is honorable in thine house? And this morning, for the next few moments, we're going to talk about the tale of two kings. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you that it's perfect and preserved. I thank you, Lord God, that you've used it to change my life. And Lord, as we meet this morning, I thank you for this place, God. I thank you for Pastor Chapel. And Dr. Getz, Lord, in all that you're doing, and I pray that you be with each and every student, Lord, I ask that you encourage them. I ask that you grow each and every one of us closer to you. Lord, we thank you that there is only one, and that is you, and that you came here, and you would have come to save just one sinner, God. I'm so great, grateful for your love. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Well, you can be seated. It is great to be back here at West Coast Baptist College. I truly did love my time here, and I'm so grateful for the work of Pastor Chapel, as many of you are, and Dr. Getch, Dr. R., and Dr. Shetler, and all the great teachers that desire to pour into you each and every day of your life. They're excited to train the next generation to be laborers in the gospel. I think many of the, one of the missing components in many small churches around America is this desire to train the next generation, this desire to instruct us in practical Christian living, this desire to help and grow the next generation to be soul winners and on fire for the Lord. And I'm thankful that Pastor Chapel many years ago stood in the gap and started this place, and many strong men behind him have come to help with that as well. Never lose sight of how blessed you are to be here in this place. I know that college can be daunting and it can be hard and all of the projects get heavy and the duty is much work, but it's a blessing to be here. As Dr. Getch said a moment ago, I had the privilege of being a Mary student here. And so although I graduated from here, uh, last night was the first time I spent on campus. So I never actually got to spend any time in the dorms except for Joshua Camp. And last night it was great. I learned a few things, though, that I didn't know that happened on campus with you campus students. I thought eventually this place did shut down. We usually would be one of the last families out of a Sunday night church service. And the boys would play basketball. And I thought eventually everyone went home. 11 o'clock last night, you guys were still like steam cleaning floors, setting lights up, and getting ready for spiritual leadership conference. And that's encouraging to know that you're stepping behind Pastor Chapel to help him 
with that conference starting just a few days from now. Are you guys excited for it? The Spiritual Leadership Conference? It's so awesome, as Dr. Getch said, that they moved that to be during the semester so that you could be part of it. I'm excited. We're going to be down here for this, and we're going to have many uh, church members with us, some deacons and some lay members. And it's always a special time for me because in 2018, my wife and I walked down that aisle right there, and we surrendered at a spiritual leadership conference. We surrendered to do whatever God wanted us to. At the time, we were serving in our local church. We were enjoying what God was doing. We were serving in the youth ministry. We had just worked in the secular world, and uh, we enjoyed the family business, and we loved the Lord. But God made it clear during the spiritual leadership conference that that's what he would have us to do. You know, there's going to, if you've been encouraged, many pastors are going to be here that you can love on. And I'm looking forward to meeting a few and loving on them too. There's many delegates coming also, people that have been encouraged by their pastor to come alongside them. Many deacons and just godly Christian workers that are going to be here. And you never know what the Lord is going to do. The Lord is going to call many laborers into the harvest. And so we're excited for that. I don't know about some of you if when God calls, if you move right away. But for me, that didn't happen. I was actually at the Spiritual Leadership Conference in 2017, and God called me, but then I fought him for the entire year. Did you guys ever fight the Lord on what he is doing with your life? Well, I wrestled with him, but finally I submitted in 2018. I was 32 years old, and I moved down here with my three boys, and I'm so thankful for them. And God, because he has a sense of humor and he loves me, we found out we were expecting a baby like Brother Tyler Johnson on the way to Lancaster, California. And so God had blessed us with a little baby girl and we're thankful for her. But you know what? I remember certain times in the hospital and I thought I was ready to quit. If you guys are ready to give up, I had to submit three papers moments before my wife gave birth to that little girl in that hospital. And you know what? It was worth it all. On the other side, you're going to look back and going to praise the Lord for what he's doing. Any, any of you freshmen in here feel like you're drinking out of a fire hydrant? We've got Eli in here from our, our church. We're so thankful for him. Have the privilege of having him in the youth group. And my oldest son, Grady, is here with me. Now, when you get to Bible college the first time, that first year, there's a lot of water coming out. There's a lot of truth going out. And I remember praying, Lord, please help me just catch some of this, what they're teaching me. Now, despite some of the challenges, moving our family down here was the best decision we made. And I believe each and every one of you are going to look back if you have a heart for God and praise the Lord for what he's doing with you. Now, if you're, if you're trying to decide, I, I do believe being married is better than being single. And if you're thinking, you know what, I'm not really sure. You know, my wife reminds me all the time of her favorite verse. He that findeth a wife findeth a good thing. And you know what? It's a miracle, man, that any woman would ever decide to marry us. And so take advantage of that if you can. <laughs> as amazing as Bible college was, what was interesting to me is how some people could go through the same classes that I did. They would go soul winning on the same streets. They would be under the same professors. They would hear the same messages from Pastor Chapel, the same chapel messages. They would see and go and be involved in all of the church activities that were going around at that time. But they had a different sentiment that I had on the other end. Even today, I'll talk to men and women that maybe attended West Coast Baptist College or another training institution some other place, and there's a different sentiment by two different groups of people. Some, they will say, you know what, it was the best time in my life. I loved and I grew closer to the Lord. I found my spouse there, my family grew there. I found salvation there, I grew in the Lord. And then others, they'll, they'll just be rated and say, you know what, all it was was filled with rules, everything was terrible, I had a terrible time and I never want to go back. And it's a terrible thing to hear that. I remember one of the first pastor fellowships meetings I was invited to. There was a group of people there. And they were involved in putting down some of their training growing up. 
And it hurt my heart because going later in life, you have a different view of it. Serving in teen ministry, I even see this. Maybe you can look back at your upbringing in your home or in your youth group where a family would have a, a bunch of different teenagers and one would graduate and be on fire for the Lord, yet the other one would fizzle out and go off into a life of sin. How could two people be in the same spiritual environment, be saved by the same gracious God, yet end up in two different places? For the next few moments this morning, we're going to look at two people in Scripture that had similar opportunities. I believe they had similar backgrounds, like many of you, similar training, yet they ended up extremely different from one another. 1 Samuel chapter 22 drops us off right in the middle of David fleeing from King Saul. These two men had a lot in common. Though at different times, both David and Saul served as king. They were both anointed by Samuel. Both of them were heroes of war. And both of them were even able to catch the heart of Israel. They were loved by the people they served. Both of these men had much of the same spiritual influence in their lives. They were both around many of the same people, yet their lives took drastically different directions. And all of you students are in a similar position today. You're living and serving in the same area as one another. Many of you have classes with one another. You share the same dorm with each other. You're learning the same principles from the same teachers. But if you are not careful, you will miss the heart of what God has for you during your time in Bible college. Many of you are at a crossroads of following man's philosophy or submitting to God's plan in your life. And as we look to God's word, we're going to see that if you don't have the right heart, you will miss the heart of God for your life. In 1 Samuel 22, we notice three stark differences between these two men that serve both as a warning and an encouragement to us today. So if you're in the scripture there in your copy of God's word, we're going to look down at verse number one. As we begin, go back to verse number one. David therefore departed thence and escaped to the cab Adalam. And when his brethren on all his father's house heard it, they went down thither to him and everyone that was in distress and everyone that was in debt and everyone that was discontented gathered themselves unto him. And he became a captain over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And David went thence to Mizpah of Moab. And he said unto the king of Moab, let my father and my mother, I pray thee, come forth and be with you till I know what God will do for me. Verse number four, and he brought them before the king of Moab and they dwelt with him all the while that David was in the hold. And the prophet Gad said unto David, abide not in the hold, depart and get thee into the land of Judah. Then David departed and came into the forest of Hereth. Now there are four seasons or stages of David's life that we see in the scripture. We see first his shepherding years where he is at home and he is growing and his parents are nurturing him. Next, we see his fleeing years where he is running for his, his life. And after that, we see his fighting years. And this is where he was a bright warrior. He served great and did great things for God. And finally, his reigning years in his life. And where we're at in 1 Samuel 22 is in the middle of his fleeing years. In our text this morning, we're going to glance into an event that took place during the second quarter of his life. And many of you are in that second quarter. You've, you've been at home. You've been loved on by your youth group and your pastor. You've been raised up by your parents. And now you're in the second stage of your life where King David was. Now, all that we see during this time frame is because King Saul focused inward instead of upward. He was more focused on preserving his reign than he was building God's kingdom. He was worried about himself. 
This led, like it often does when you're only worried about yourself, to jealousy, leads to anger and insecurity. I don't know if any of you have been in a relation like that, but it's not a healthy one. It leads to jealousy, anger, depression, demonic oppression with Saul. Saul was threatened by the very man that God had anointed to be king over Israel. And I know we have all heard of several stories about the time that uh, King Saul went after King David and tried to take his life from him. We think of the times that he threw the javelin at him just a few chapters before. But it wasn't a few isolated instances. David was running for 10 to 15 years of his life fleeing from Saul. Saul was actively pursuing him for that long. And in verse 1, we learn that David was even periodically living in caves at that time, trying to protect and preserve his life. If we were to back up to chapter 21 in our text this morning, we would see that while David was fleeing from Saul, he became extremely hungry. He was discouraged at this point, and he found himself at Nob. And Nob is where the tabernacle of the Lord is kept at this time. It was a mobile sanctuary. So David goes into the, the mobile sanctuary there, and he asks Ahimelech if he has any food for him. He was, he was discouraged. He was hungry. And so he goes to the place where he knew God was, and he asks Ahimelech. And Ahimelech says, all we have is a consecrated bread. Well, a bit of back and forth in chapter 1 if we were to back up. And eventually Ahimelech gives him the sword of Goliath and give, gives him some food as well. And David, in chapter 22, is continuing to run from King Saul. He just got that bread. He was reunited with these band of brethren that are now following him. And he finds himself in Mizpah. Now, this was a safe and protected city for the king of Moab. This is where David is at this point. David, in an effort to protect himself and the group that was now following him, finds him in a, himself in a place that he shouldn't be. Have you ever been running for something in your life and you find yourself in a position you shouldn't be in? That's where David was. And in verse 5, the first difference I see that unlike Saul, David received instruction. David received the warnings. David heeded them. He received instruction. We see that in verse 5. We'll read that again. The Bible says, And the prophet Gad said unto David, Abide not in the hold. Depart and get thee into the land of Judah. Then David departed and came into the forest of Hereth. Now, one of the men that was in the band of David's followers was the prophet Gad. Gad knew that it was his duty to know God, to love God, and to warn people about what God wanted them to know. It was his duty to warn David that he was now in violations of God's word. The prophet knew that the Torah prohibited the Israelites from making any friendly accords with the Moabites. Gad was familiar with Deuteronomy 23. If you want to mark that passage down, I'll read it. The Bible says, An Ammonite or Moabite shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. Even to their tenth generation shall they not enter into the congregation of the Lord forever. Thou shalt not seek their peace nor their prosperity all thy days forever. Gad comes to David and with the authority of God says, David, what are you doing here? I know you're running. I know you're scared. We're all following you, but this is not where we're supposed to be. Saul is after you and David is now warned of Gad. And what is so neat about David is that he heeded the warning of Gad. Have you ever been warned about something in your life that you ignored? Have you ever been given instruction that you didn't follow? During Christmas break of my second year of Bible college, we were headed back home. Any of you get to go home for Christmas? You look forward to that time. It's a lot of fun. Well, we're not too far from here, like Dr. Sketch said, about five hours. And we had a great time celebrating Christmas, but I had to get down, back down for work the day after Christmas and some things going on, getting ready for a winter class. And so I loaded up the van, and it was one of those days after Christmas. I don't know if you're like this in your home. You get everything in there, all of the clothes. We've got four kids, and the last basketball goes in, and you've got to, like, kick the door shut. Well, that's what it was like. We get it loaded up, and I go to head down the driveway, and I get a phone call. It was my kind and loving father-in-law, 
kindly asking me not to travel on the roads that day. See, it had started raining. There were some weather alerts coming out. Now, I just kind of go about life this way. In the winter, it rains. We're going to keep doing what we're doing. And so I kindly told him, you know what, sir, I appreciate it, but we're going to still uh, hit the road. I've got some things that I have to do in Lancaster. I didn't heed the warning. But 10 miles down the road, I realized that I had lost the key for my rental. We rented a house down here in Lancaster, and it was a blessing. And so I started calling all the houses as we visited, trying to find this key so that when we got here, because I was still coming, I could get into the house and I didn't have to break Brother Georgie's window, the man that I rented from. And so every call that I made, they gave me the same warning. They said, listen, there's a lot of weather alerts. I've been watching the weather. You know, most of those guys like six hours in the morning already. And they said, you don't need to go today. But I didn't listen. Thankfully, I remembered that my landlord had an extra key. So I went by his house and he gave it to me. And you know what he did? He warned me not to travel. He said, don't go. You're not gonna, it's not gonna be well. You could stay here. You can enjoy another day with your family. But I didn't heed the warning. I continued down the road. Now, honestly, I thought I won this battle. It had been three hours. We were having a great time in the car with our family. It was fun. Even the little dog was behaving. The little girl was fast asleep and we were having fun. And then we get just about to Bakersfield and we get alerted. Do you ever get those alerts on your phone? The GPS starts going off and the weather alerts. Well, they said that I-5 was closed. Now, that's one way to get back to Lancaster, but it's not my preferred way. And so my wife said, and she kind of gently warned me, hey, the, the highway's closed now due to snow going over the grapevine. I said, well, we're going to take 58 anyways. I like it better. We're going to go up there. We'll be just fine. Well, 20 minutes later, guess what was closed? 58 going over to Hatchby. Now, at this time, you probably are thinking, okay, you started listening to the warnings at this time. You're going to stop with your family and get a hotel in Bakersfield. No, there's still another way. I thought, you know, it's a good day to see the ocean. We're going to go to the coastal route. We're going to go down 101. We're going to go by Ventura back up to Santa Clarita and we're maybe getting in and out in the evening and have a great time. That's what I did. Now, this it was really raining. And so we get just about to San Luis Obispo and then we get another alert. And my wife's checking the weather the whole time. Mudslides, massive mudslides in three different spots had closed the road 101. Now, I was out of options. And, and if I wasn't, I don't think my wife would have graciously stayed in the car if I tried another one. So I decided, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to stay in San Luis Obispo. And it, it was hard to even get a room because everybody was in the same situation. We found this little mom and pop hotel that it was shady at best. And we stayed there overnight and we had a great time. 4 a.m. I'm up and I'm checking and they say this. They say, hey, the road over to Hatchby is going to open at 10 a.m. 10 a.m. you're going to be able to get over. And so we get the van back loaded up. For some reason, the boys got all their Legos out and basketballs. We pack the van back up early morning and we get there. And I said, I'm going to be the first one in line. And so I get to Tehachapi, not Tehachapi, Bakersfield on the road up to Tehachapi by Murray Farms. And the road is closed. At this point, they're still saying that it's going to open. But it took me 10 hours to go what should have taken an hour and a half. We got home that night at nine o'clock at night. We waited in line and inched our way the whole way over the 58 into Rosamond and eventually into Lancaster, all because I didn't heed the warning, all because I didn't take instruction in my life. And a lot of times we're like that. Have you ever made a mess out of something because you didn't take direction and you're too prideful to admit it? And so you're gonna stick, you're gonna stick on that path no matter what you say, you know what? I like my bed like this and I'm gonna stay in it. That's what I did. You're going to have many opportunities to hear and heed instruction in your life, not just in Bible college, but all through your time on this earth and not just in the ministry. Before I entered into the ministry, every job I had required me to heed and to hear instruction. 
every job, every ministry you serve in, you're going to be called to listen up and to heed instruction. It will require you to be on the receiving end of instruction, not just giving instruction, but receiving it. I love what Proverbs 19:20 tells us. It says, hear counsel and receive instruction that thou mayest be wise in the latter end. Proverbs 10:8 reminds us the wise in heart will receive commandments, but a prating fool shall fall. Proverbs 8.33 says to hear instruction and be wise and refuse it not. All through scripture, God encourages us to listen up, to heed instruction. The Lord tells us to take fast hold of it. Let her not go. Keep her for she is thy life. God says your role in life requires you to heed instruction. I love what John Phillips said. He said wisdom protects the quality of life and the length of life. God promises that those who cleave to sound instruction, cleave to it, hold to it, and never let it go, we'll have the best of life. God wants us to continually be on the receiving end of this instruction because he wants what is best for us. He's not trying to keep something from you that's good. He's trying to keep you from something that's bad. He wants you to listen up. And when we allow pride to settle into our hearts and lives, and when we decide inwardly that we aren't going to heed the warnings in life, the last thing we will want to do is receive instruction. Have you ever been there where you let pride settle in and you don't want to hear anything from anyone? Sadly, I still get there today. God wants us to look at King David and see that he received this warning. He could have said, Gad, listen, I'm leading the 400 men here. I know what's going on. You're not being chased for your life. I'll tell you when we're going to leave. He didn't do that. He left. God says, if you hate instruction, you are brutish and have wandered away from the truth and love death. In a society that is continually praising the rebels, we need to be careful to humbly receive instruction in our lives. David understood that. This was even one of the key reasons he was a man after God's own heart, because he received instruction. The apostle Paul said this while preaching in Acts 13, about David. And when he had removed him, Saul, he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, listen to the last statement, which shall fulfill all my will. That's why he was a man after God's own heart. God said, here's David, a man that will strive, that will try, that will actively pursue my will in his life, a man that will listen to instruction and heed the warning. This sets David apart from Saul. On the flip side, Saul was the opposite. We see this in chapter 10. Samuel gave Saul specific instructions, do you remember, to wait in Gilgal until he got there to make an offering. He told Samuel to wait, he told Saul to wait for me and he would come to administrate the sacrifices. Now Saul almost made it. He tried so hard. It was on day seven. He waited up until that last day to disobey. And then he decided, you know what? I think that I could do this on my own. Samuel's not here yet. And upon arriving, this is what Samuel told Saul. Thou hast done foolishly. He didn't heed the warning. Thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God, which he commanded thee. For now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever. But now thy kingdom shall not continue. Saul didn't receive the instruction. He didn't heed the warning. And one of the key reasons that you can be in the same place, learning from the same teachers, the same truth, and end up so different from one another. How could that happen in life? Well, it's because some of us haven't decided to receive instruction to heed the warnings in our lives. Maybe you haven't told the Lord that you will obey whatever he instructs you from his perfect word. Maybe you haven't told the Lord that you'll submit when the Holy Spirit moves in your life to direct you. That's one of the reasons we can be in the same place and experience different results. It's one thing to study to know an answer for a test, and all of us have done that many times over. But it's another to receive the wisdom in the heart of God. God doesn't just want you to know the answer. He wants you to understand the heart that he is trying to instill in you here. 
Don't allow another day to go by in your life without being completely open to receiving the heart of what God is trying to do in your life. It was tragic to hear the story from many young men and women out there that went through the same instruction, the same training. They have the same guidelines, yet missed the heart. And then they have been on a spiritual down spiral ever since. Don't make the mistake that Saul did and tune the heart of God out. Because if you do, when you refuse it like Saul did, you will develop what Saul had. The second difference I see between these two men is that Saul had a victim mentality. Saul had a victim mentality. When you aren't willing to listen, you are going to play the victim. Look back down at the text this morning in verse number six. The Bible says, when Saul heard that David was discovered... And the men that were with him, now Saul abode in Gibeah under a tree at Ramah, having a spear in hand, and all his servants were standing about him. What he's doing is he's having royal court outdoors, and this uh, happened from time to time in this, this day and age. He was having royal court. They're all around him. And then Saul said unto his servants that stood about him, Hear now, ye Benjamites, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you all the captains? He's promising them all sorts of goods from the world. Thousands and captains of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me. And there is none that showeth me that my son hath made a league with the son of Jesse. And there is none of you, listen, that is sorry for me. None of you feel sorry for me or showeth unto me that my son hath stirred up my servant against me to lie and wait as it is this day. Saul had found out that Jonathan had helped David escape his father. He found out that the plan to kill David was thwarted. He goes from angry to enraged, and he is berserk at this point. He is livid. He is so upset. He was so worried about himself and what everyone else thought of him because he was inward focused. And he thought everyone was against him personally. They weren't against him personally. Jonathan thought it was wrong that he was trying to murder God's anointed. They weren't against Saul's person at all. He viewed someone helping another person as an attack on him. He was believing the lie that everyone was out to get him. Have you ever been there in your life where you think everybody is against you? My teacher is singling me out. The pastor was looking at me. My father only corrects me. In life, we can get to a point where we think we are the victim. I struggle with this big time as a teenager, and it's played even into my marriage that I have to be careful and constantly submit to the Lord and say, God, I am not the victim. No, my son is here. He's about to get his driver's license, and it's great. I let him drive on the way down here. He has his permit. The only problem is that I was doing some work, and I was looking down, and I look up. We're supposed to be on the 99 to get to Bakersfield. He was trying to take me to the ocean. He thought we were going to go boogie boarding. We're on the 41, and he got way off course. Now, I remember when I was a teenager and I first got my license, I developed a victim mentality. Within the, the first two years of having my license, I had received many speeding tickets. I typically enjoyed driving faster than the posted speed limit. I received my first speeding ticket within weeks of having a license. Now, who in here, honestly, has got a speeding ticket before, college students? Yeah, yep, I've been there. That's not fun, is it? So within, within six months, I had already received six speeding tickets of getting my license. So I was typically driving 20 to 30 miles an hour over the speed limit. And with each ticket I got, I began to feel singled out. Don't you feel sorry for me? Saul said, feel sorry. I, I felt so bad for myself. I honestly thought the California Highway Patrol had it out for me. I thought that they had my picture in their office and they said, we hate this kid. I thought there was a conspiracy against me. I honestly went to my pastor and I said, these people are out to get me. You have to help me. By the time I was 18 years old, I had received 18 speeding violations. 
the only reason I still have my license is because as a juvenile, there's not the three-ticket rule. When I turned 18 and got three tickets that year, it was gone. And thankfully it was, or I probably would have wrapped myself around a tree. I still remember one of the last times I got pulled over. I live in a small town in Mariposa, and we love it there. It's fun. Lots of tourists come through. We're excited to take the gospel to them. We don't have a stoplight there, but we do have a four-way stop. And even that was new at this point. I remember coming to the four-way stop and seeing a CHP hiding in the bushes as I blew the stop sign. Now, I thought, honestly, I had a good excuse because it wasn't there two weeks ago. It's probably okay if I just go through the stop sign. So I went through, and I thought, okay, he's coming. If he gets me, my dad's going to kill me. My pastor's going to kill me. I'll never drive again. I wish my dad would have killed me earlier, but he didn't. So I take the back road. There's a main highway that goes through the town, and there's a road that skirts up actually by Eli's house, and it goes by the county courthouse. And I thought I could go that way, and he'll never catch me. I was a much better driveway than the highway patrol. That's what I thought. So I get to the last stop sign and I come back down into where that top road meets the main road. And guess who was sitting in that parking lot down there waiting? He was out there with one hand on his hip and his other finger that had more muscles than my body calling me over to him. He was out there on the corner and you know what he did? Let's just say he instructed me up one side and down the other. Thankfully, it clicked that day. I was the one messing up, but in all honesty, I thought they were against me. I thought the people in the youth group were against me because the parents wouldn't let their kids ride with me. Just the other day, another one of them came to me and we're going on a youth event and they're like, hey, have you slowed it down a bit? And I'm like, seriously, I've been driving 50 miles an hour now to pay penance for all of my sins before. And they let them ride with me. I thought everybody was out to get me, but I was the one that was in sin. Dictionaries define victim mentality as an acquired personality trait. The more you do it, the stronger the habit grows, the more that it will attack you. That means that living with an outlook like Saul is something that will continue to grow if we don't ask God to root it out of our lives. And we're lying to ourselves as teenagers and college students and young adults if we say that we don't have a struggle with this sometimes as well. You have to be careful of this type of thinking today because the culture is pushing us to blame everything on everyone but ourselves. There's whole movements, the Me Too movement. Everybody is saying that I have been wronged by someone else. Society tells us that if we make a bad decision, it's not our fault at all. The belief of the day and in modern psychology is that we are all just victims. And if the devil can convince you that you didn't do anything wrong, you will never do anything right for God. If the enemy can distract us with these thoughts, he will disable us from action. Saul said, there is none of you that is sorry for me. Can you see him pleading with them to feel bad for him? This was Saul's pattern of life. He always portrayed himself as the one being attacked. Another time we see Saul acting like the victim is in 1 Samuel 13, where he had made a sacrifice against the will of God. And just before Samuel tells him his consequences, he asks him, what have you done? Samuel cousin says, Saul, what are you doing? And this is his response. Samuel, you don't understand. It's because I saw that the people were scattered from me and that thou camest not within the days appointed and that the Philistines gathered themselves together at mixed match. Samuel catches Saul red-handed and Saul blames everybody but himself. He says it was the people's fault. It was the enemy's fault. And in fact, Samuel, I'm glad you brought it up because it's your fault too. Saul never accepted responsibility. He said, Samuel, it's not my fault. And you notice that he said, I forced myself to do it in verse 12. He said, you should feel bad for me. I forced myself to do it. Saul tried to make Samuel feel bad for what Saul did. In chapter 15, we see again that God sent Saul to destroy the Amalekites. And God says to destroy everything. He told him to destroy both man and woman, infant, suckling, ox, sheep, camel, and ass. God gave Saul clear instructions. 
He didn't receive them. Saul saved the king and many of the animals. And when confronted, his first response was going to be to play the victim. That was his go-to card. He stated, he started to blame the people he was supposed to be leading. He said it this way. But the people took of the spoil, the sheep and the oxen. The sheep of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God in Gilgal. It's only because the people that you gave me to lead. Saul was always looking to shift the blame in his life off of himself because he had a victim mentality. Stephen Covey, business author, writes it this way. He said this of people struggling with victim mentality. They are affected by their environment. When people treat them well, they feel well. They build their emotional lives around the behavior of others, empowering the weaknesses of other people to control them. When you live with this mindset, you allow a false reality to control what God wants you to be and what God wants you to do in your life. When you go through life behaving and acting and believing that you are being singled out and that everyone is against you, it allows your thoughts to usurp the authority of the Holy Spirit's leading in your life. When you play the victim, you're telling God to get off the throne of your heart and let you lead with how you feel. That was Saul. According to him, he was always being taken advantage of. When in reality, he was the one that was hurting others. He complained about his son when just a few days before he tried to kill his son. He complained about David trying to hurt him when he was actively hunting David. Even when we go through trials, the Bible never tells us to act like a victim because we are going to go through difficulties. We're going to go through trials. But even in that case, God says, don't have a victim mentality. In 1 Peter 2.12, we read this. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. A victim mentality takes a focus off of Christ and puts it onto us. And if we go around acting like a victim in our lives, we're going to miss the call and the opportunity of God to show people the love of Christ. We're going to miss those times. Even when rough times come, God desires for us to glorify him. Saul was missing out on his family. He was missing out on being with Jonathan. He was missing out on influencing the men that God had put in his realms. And I believe one of the main causes of the next generation departing from the face is that they have adopted this worldly philosophy that they are the victim. And when you live as a victim, you never take responsibility for your sin or your call to service. One author said it this way, at its heart, a victim mentality is actually a way to avoid taking any responsibility for yourself or your life. And quickly, the third difference I see here is that David displayed accountability. He displayed accountability unlike Saul. David's held himself accountable. David took responsibility. He didn't blame others for his fallacies. He was the opposite of a victim mentality. We see this in verses 19 through 22 of our text. Basically what happens is one of the, the priests was able to escape. We see in verse 19, and Nob, the city of the priests, smote he with the edge of the sword, both men and women, children and suckling and oxen and asses and sheep with the edge of the sword. Now this time, Saul was not given instruction to kill everybody in the village, but he goes into the city of Nob where the mobile sanctuary was and he kills everything and everyone he sees. This was Saul. And one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar showed David that Saul had slain the Lord's priest. And David said unto Abiathar, I knew it that day when Doeg the Edomite was there, that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of thy father's house. In a rage, Saul has all of these priests and inhabitants of the city of Nob killed. He commissioned the execution of every man, every woman, every boy, every girl, and every animal. All but one person was killed. Thankfully, God allowed Abiathar to come to David. 
And can you imagine when Abiathar finally finds David? He comes. He could have been covered in blood as he was hiding under a body. He most likely had a worried countenance about him as he comes and runs to David. And he tells him, David, they're all gone. Everybody is dead except for me. What is interesting is seeing David's response in verse 22. It says, and David said unto Abiathar, I knew it that day when Doeg the Edomite was there. When David went in to get that bread, Doeg was there. David thought at that time that Doeg was going to kill Saul. Looking back, David said, I should have killed him then. Follow along in the verse that he would surely tell Saul. And the last statement, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of thy father's house. Now let's get this straight though. David wasn't the one that killed 85 priests. He wasn't the one that killed all the women and the children in that village. It was Saul. He wasn't the one that was hunting God's anointed. Yet he said, I have occasion. And what he did was make himself accountable for any form of wrongdoing that was his in this story. He admitted that he should have killed Doeg when he had the chance. He took responsibility in his life. This is another key reason that David was a man after God's own heart. Not because he was always choosing the right path, but because he was always willing to admit his wrongs and change directions when confronted. We see that in his grievous sin with Bathsheba when confronted. He tells Nathan the prophet, I have sinned against the Lord. Psalms 51, he says this, for I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is ever before me. He always took responsibility. In all of life, you're going to fall into one of those two categories. You are going to always blame others for your situation or you will decide to willingly accept the responsibility for what happens in your life. You know how it is in your classes. There was always at least a couple of students to say, I couldn't get that project done because of the internet or because I had to work late or because they had me to go and to serve in this ministry. I had to work more, my computer broke. And if we're not careful, we will fall into the sin of blaming everyone else for it. Because if you don't accept responsibility now, when you get into the ministry, it's just going to be even harder. If you fall prey to that practice, it's only going to get worse. Saul was always making excuses for his shortfalls. He was always dodging responsibility, but David accepted it because David understand who he was in the light of God. He said, behold, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. We've all heard that verse before. It's a whole lot easier for me to accept responsibility when I understand what I truly deserve and what I only deserve. Proverbs 28, 13 says, He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. One of the ways that we often try to cover our sins is by failing to accept responsibility. When we don't accept responsibility for what we do, we are covering our sins. And you want to know how to have a miserable time in Bible college, have a miserable time in the Christian life? You want to know how to have a terrible semester? Blame everything that happens to you on someone else. But if you decide to take responsibility and make yourself accountable, you will enjoy the journey that God has for you. You will appreciate the place God has you in, and you will be honored to serve him in your generation. As you continue to train for what God has for you this semester and beyond, you're going to end up in one of two camps. You're going to be thankful or resentful. You're going to be thankful or resentful in your life. It reminds me when I graduated high school and began to see many of my classmates head out in different directions. Many of them chose to come to Bible college, which is an amazing decision. That's a wonderful thing to do. But as the years progressed and these young men and women began to graduate because I was still in my hometown, it began to filter back into the community. I began to notice two different groups. I would talk to many of them, and it was the worst time they ever had in their life. Ministry was awful, and most of those that complained and never took responsibility aren't even attending a Christian church today. 20 years later, many of them aren't even interested in things of the Lord. But on the other hand, there was a group of young adults that were on fire for the Lord. They wanted to turn the world upside down with the gospel. 
These are the ones that are still serving the Lord with gladness today, many of whom I called on the way down here, many of whom I fellowship with regularly. These are the ones that God is blessing. These are the ones changing communities with the gospel. And what camp you end up is in is going to be determined by the decisions that you make today and each day following. Are you going to receive instruction? Are you going to accept responsibility in your life? Or will you play the victim like Saul did? David and Saul were two men that had similar opportunities but ended up vastly different in their lives. You can be in a spiritual place like you are, surrounded by men and women who love God and still miss the heart of it, because when you don't have the heart, you won't catch the heart. Ask the Lord to open you up to what he would have for you today. And if you don't want to end up bitter and broke spiritually, surrender your will to God and ask him to give you a clear perspective on his goodness in your life. And I'm encouraged to see each and every one of you here giving your lives to the ministry of the gospel And it's very encouraging to churches all around the world to know that pray for you, that give to this ministry. But as I look back at things that I notice as a Mary student and see on the other end, there were two groups. They may look the same, they dress the same, but on the other end, those that always found excuses and played the victim aren't serving the Lord today. They weren't thankful for the philosophy of ministry they learned here. They weren't thankful for the truth that they learned doctrinally. God wants all of us to receive what he has for us. And I would encourage you with that today. 